of our first love comes from Revelation chapter 2. Well, let's pray first. Father, we lift up this time in your word. Pray that you'd help us to, to get through this teaching. We're a little short on time today, but we ask that you'd just cause your Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts, Lord, and, and show us where we stand today in terms of our first love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Revelation 2.1, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. This is Jesus. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. But then comes verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. The light within that church, we are to be the light of the world, unless you repent. Until you get to verse 4, this sounds like the ideal church, I think. I know your works, your labor, your patience. You cannot bear those who are evil. You've tested those who say they're apostles and are not, have found them liars. You've persevered and have patience, have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. That sounds like the whole package. That sounds like the kind of a church that any of us would want to be a part of. Until we get to verse 4. And as you probably know, or at least have guessed, the word here in Revelation 2, 4 for love is agape, the highest form of love, God's love, unconditional love, unselfish love. And so as born-again believers, they had initially exhibited the fruit of the Spirit. But as is typical of so many churches, pastors, believers in general, the Ephesians' initial in-love relationship with God had deteriorated to one because they were strong in all the fundamentals. I believe they had de deteriorated to what we call fundamentalism. Strong on doctrine and good works, and both are important. We don't want to um, diminish those. Sound doctrine is absolutely important, and doing good works, not to be saved, but because we are saved. The word righteousness simply means to do that which is right. But, without agape, without that love that only God can plant in our hearts and minds, people wind up doing the right things for the wrong reasons. I couldn't help but think of um, Lazarus' two sisters, Mary and Martha. You know the story. <clears throat> Luke 10, beginning verse 38. Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village, Jesus, of course, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And we know that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were all close friends of Jesus. And later on, Jesus would go on to raise Lazarus from the dead. But he comes to their house, he's welcomed by Martha, 
And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. Sounds like Martha was a little bossy, doesn't it? She talked to Jesus that way. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, Marsha, Marsha. Um, you are worried and troubled with many things. And although we shouldn't get to that point, let's be honest, many times as believers, we do allow ourselves to get to that point where we're worried and troubled about many things. That was Martha. Mary was at peace. She was content sitting at the feet of Jesus. Jesus says to Martha, one thing is needed, one thing. And uh, Pastor Bob Claycamp, um, when he taught at our men's retreat, he, uh, he brought this up and he brought it up again in Omaha, and I just love it. He talks about concentrating on the next most important thing in our lives as we move forward with God. Concent not getting all caught up in everything and distracted and confused and like Martha, but focus in on that which is the next one most important thing. And that's what Jesus tells Mary here. One thing is needed, or tells Martha, and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. No, Martha, I'm not going to tell her to get up in, in a frenzy and following you around to do all this work when the most important thing is to have relationship with me. One thing is needed, to sit at Jesus' feet, to hear his word, to be taught by him, have fellowship and relationship with him. Then, if we do that, all that we do and say hopefully will be fueled by his agape love, that first love. Now, undoubtedly, Martha truly loved Jesus as well. And she was eager to serve him, but she was doing the proverbial putting the cart before the horse, Christian service before personal relationship. The personal relationship should result in Christian service, but again, if you flip it around, it's putting the cart before the horse, and you'll probably wind up doing the right things for the wrong reasons. And another thing I've noticed along those lines, being a pastor for many, many years, sometimes people hide behind their Christian service. Now, one of the reasons we have our uh, Sunday school workers, teachers, helpers, do it every other week is because we want them to have the opportunity to be here in the service, receiving, because we can't give out that which we don't have, right? Before you can give out, you've got to receive. So, but what I've seen through the years, I'm not pointing fingers at anyone particularly, but I've noticed how some people will get involved in an area of ministry like that, but then you don't ever see them in the church service. So they're just kind of hiding out, and they're using Christian service, so-called Christian service, as a way to kind of hide out for whatever reason. Maybe they don't like being around people. Maybe they don't like me. Actually, there have been people in the church like that. They won't come in here because they don't like me, but they'll go somewhere else and serve because they want people to like them. Hello? Hello? I guess I'll take whatever I can get. Whether it's teaching Sunday school, 
security. You know, I'm not keeping an eagle eye out, but in fact, I suspect you guys probably notice it more than I do. You probably notice. Well, you know what? I only see that person out in the parking lot doing security. I never see him in the church. I'm, I'm too busy to notice all that, but I'll bet you guys do. And so, if the shoe fits, wear it. Hopefully, you're convicted by the Holy Spirit. Christian service before personal relationship is not the way to go. And that will result, I believe, in a loss of our first love. And so this can gradually devolve as we go down the line here from the uh, first love relationship with God to the fundamentalism, which is really um, legalism. I kind of skipped over that, I think. I wanted to point that out. It's, it results in legalism, like the Pharisees, the Sadducees. It devolves into a works mentality where those who once believed in salvation by grace through faith, Ephesians 2.8, we need to believe in that because that's what the Bible says. We're not saved by our own good works. We're saved by grace through faith. But then we can take that downward spiral as we begin to lose our first love or walk away from it, however you want to put it. We begin to operate in a salvation by works mentality mindset. Leads to legalism, Phariseeism, judgmentalism. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. Paul writes, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, that is a spiritual gift in the New Testament, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbals, just a bunch of noise. The tongues of men would be his preaching, his teaching, the tongues of angels is that supernatural prayer language that's available to every believer, really. <clears throat> he says it's just a bunch of noise if I don't have agape. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing, doing the right things for the wrong reasons. And so Jesus' message was peppered with references to love for God, love for one another, as well as his love for us. Matthew twenty-two thirty-six 36 through 40. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these commandments, listen to this, hang all the law and the prophets. The New Testament clearly teaches, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And that agape love is actually the fulfillment of the law. He said on all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. <clears throat> and then John 15, 12. This is my commandment, says Jesus. It's not a suggestion. This is my commandment that you love one another. How? 
This is a tall order, folks. As I have loved you, how did Jesus love us? He died on the cross for our sins. He laid down his life. Self-denial, self-sacrifice, the exact opposite of selfishness, self-centered living. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. We know that verse, John 3, 16. And Jesus commands us that you love one another as I have loved you. The only way we can do that is to be filled with his agape love. And the only way we can be filled with his agape love is to stay in right relationship with him, to maintain that first love that we knew when we first came to Christ. And just like in an earthly relationship and an earthly marriage, the only way to do that, it takes work, it takes effort. We'll get into that more in just a moment. Peter reinforced the teachings of Christ by saying in 1 Peter 4, 8, Above all things, have fervent love for one another. Fervent, intense. We can't do that without God's help, right? Because our natural inclination is to be self-seeking, to be selfish, to put self first. And the world even teaches us to do that, right? You've got to learn to love yourself before you can love anybody else. That's one of those foolish sayings the wisdom of men, not of God. We're born in love with ourselves. There's ample evidence of that. You don't have to learn to love yourself. What you have to do is learn to die to self and live for Christ. <clears throat> Above all things, this is probably one of my favorite verses in the Bible, really. Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Wait a minute, I thought the blood of Christ covered our sins. The blood of Christ doesn't cover our sins. The blood of Christ removes our sins. The Old Testament sacrificial system covered the sins, but it did not permanently remove them. That's why Christ came and shed his blood, that they might be removed. But what Peter is saying here, James said we all sin in many ways. Even when we don't mean to, we unintentionally, you know, we hurt people's feelings, we offend them, we, the, the selfishness in us rears its ugly head. But in order for us not to become divided and separated and angry and bitter and resentful and jealous, that agape love, the love of God, enables us to cover each other's sins, not in the sense that Christ's blood removes them, but we excuse the indiscretions. We excuse those faux pas. We, we choose to overlook them because of the love of God. And that's what Peter means by this love, this agape love covers over a multitude of sins. We don't have to get offended every time one of us does something we shouldn't do. And the thing is, when we do get offended, the person who's hurt the most by it is yourself. And so that agape love will cover a multitude of sins. I don't have to get offended because somebody appeared to ignore me. And there's a lot of assumptions that happen there. That person could be deep in thought. They could have just lost a loved one. They could have lost their job. You don't know. Because it's all about you. If they don't give you a great big smile and a hug, then they're being mean to you. You're offended. Don't go there. That's one of the enemy's greatest 
weapons against us is to try to create offense towards others. Let that love, that agape love, cover over the multitude of sins. Some people are better communicators than others. Some people struggle with knowing how to say the right thing at the right time. We can choose to be offended or we can love them in Christ and overlook it and move on. Now the key text that Pastor Steve Johnson asked me to talk about comes now in the message. And that is 2 Timothy 3.14 but I'm going to begin in verse 12 and we probably won't make it through this. I don't know. We'll see. Paul writes to Timothy, his young protege, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, but evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Tucker Carlson kind of touched on some of that. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, in America, for the most part, we have not suffered physical persecution like believers in other parts of the world. Sure, there's the occasional beat down where somebody, in fact, it's been happening more and more when people go to these abortion clinics and they peacefully protest for the right to life and they get beat up. It happens. So we are seeing some of this physical persecution, but certainly in many other ways. If you were from a, a typical traditional religious background, Catholic, for example, and you leave that faith and you become a born-again evangelical Christian or what have you, oftentimes your family will cut you off. Or they'll call you a heretic, right? There's some persecution that happens there. You get saved and your unsaved friend says, you're no fun anymore. I don't want to hang out with you. And you say, well, I don't want to hang out with you either. <laughs> because you're a vile, wretched sinner and I don't want to be influenced by you. But we do want to love them and show them the love of Christ, right? So I'm being a little dramatic there. But the Bible does say, don't be unequally yoked with non-believers and that, you know, we'll be influenced. We should influence them, not the other way around. And there's a lot of variables in that equation as well. But the thing is, I don't want to belabor the point about persecution. You might lose your job. You might be demoted. You might be kicked out of the military. There's a, a gazillion ways that we can be persecuted for our faith. Your spouse might leave you because they're not a believer and they can't stand being around you. Persecution is real. And if we're not careful, persecution in any of its many forms can take its toll on our agape our first love. And that's why Paul wrote in Galatians 6, 9, let us not grow weary while doing good for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Why did Paul write that in his book to the Galatians? Because it is possible to grow weary it is while doing good. It's possible to lose heart and we have to guard against that. And that's one of the reasons people like the Ephesians had fallen from their first love. Jesus, Matthew 24, 12, because of lawlessness or wickedness will abound, the love of many will grow cold, 
And once again, guess what? The word here is agape. In Matthew 24, 12, only God and his children are capable of agape love. So the shocking thing here in Matthew 24, which is an entire chapter about the last days, the end times, Jesus warns that the agape of many will grow cold. So it's obvious Jesus is talking about believers in the last days. The agape of many believers will wax or grow cold. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And although our intentions may be, intentions may be good, as we depart from our first love, we become more and more vulnerable to deception. When you've got a close, personal, intimate relationship with Jesus like Mary had, and you're sitting at his feet and learning from him, you're going to recognize the fake and the phony right away. But hence the modern church. We're now facing the church of Laodicea, the final church, and all of the seven churches. We studied this months ago in Revelation. The seven churches represent not only an immediate application, but they represent seven periods in church history. We're now in the last part. We're in Laodicea, the lukewarm church. And it's because believers have lost or fallen away from their first love. Second Timothy 3, 1 through 5. But know this, Paul writes to Timothy, in the last days, here we are again, perilous or dangerous times will come for men will be lovers of themselves. Versus loving God, lovers of themselves, lovers of money, hello. We see that uh, in abundant evidence in our society today. Money propels and powers everything. That's why they keep encouraging people to get shots that will kill you. Not heal you, not help you, but damage you at the very least and kill you because they've made billions and billions of dollars it's no longer anymore about, like Tucker said in his video, about what's good for the people, what's good for us as a culture, as a society, as a nation. It's about money. That's why everything's been shipped overseas where it can be made in sweat factories with underage children getting a dollar a day. You see how evil and greedy our world has become? People used to actually take pride and the things that they made and sold and wanted to stand behind them and um, they didn't make as much money back then but they took pride in their craftsmanship and the fact that it was made by people that you know right here in your own community in your own state in your own country money lovers of money boasters proud blasphemers disobedient to parents we won't have time to elaborate on all this unthankful unholy Unmoving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, but it describes our world today to a T. Traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure. There is again, lovers of themselves, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. And that's why even many people who identify as believers, when given the choice of going to church on Sunday or going camping, boating, fishing, or whatever, I'm not knocking those things, but if God doesn't come first in your life, you've probably lost your first love. 
And I know that having a relationship with God is about more than going to church, but it's just like the Old Testament tithe. I can carry this out till next week if I have to, can I? It's just like the Old Testament tithe. The Bible, the New Testament does not strictly teach that the believers to give 10%. Paul says, whatever you give, you know, give it joyfully as unto the Lord. And he says to give in, in an amount that's commensurate with your income, appropriate for your income. So there's a baseline. We, at least we have, we can look at the Old Testament the 10% tithe, but in actuality, if you add up all the different tithes that they gave, it was more like 30%. Today, the government sucks off a big part of that. But a baseline, so where do you start? My suggestion, you know, just as an act of, of dedication, commitment, worship, discipline, that should be a starting point, in my opinion, for every believer, 10%. And then as God moves on your heart as he allows you, he enables you. Raise it, because if it's not a sacrifice, it's not worship. If you don't feel it, remember the story of the widow's might, you know? And the, and the Pharisee guy or the rich guy was bragging about his giving, and she only had these two little coins, and she put it all in the offering. If it doesn't hurt a little, it's not really worship, it's not sacrifice. But we have to have a starting point, right? Just like with your, your, your devotional life. You know, maybe you don't start with an hour a day or two hours a day. Start with five minutes. You know, work your way up. But there has to be a baseline starting point. That's my opinion, at least. I think that is good advice. That's wisdom, good counsel. And it tells us here in verse 5, having a form of godliness, again, sure sounds like these people go to church. And my point with that, and when I said, you know, there's more to our relationship with God than just going to church on Sunday, but you need a baseline, you need a starting point. You need to begin to establish some discipline in your life as a believer. And one, honestly, one of the easiest things you can do is to do what we're hearing here today. All you have to do is show up. I teach, we have worship, you have opportunities for fellowship. It's one of the easiest things you can do. And if, if you can't make that commitment and that discipline, I doubt that you're going to be doing anything else either. And it's just like with our kids. We have a responsibility as parents to train our kids up in the ways of the Lord. But at the very least, come on parents, can you just set aside your own selfish interests and bring them to Sunday school at least? Hello? My parents didn't go to church, but they made sure I went to Sunday school. And I'm thankful for it. Now, I had aunts and uncles and cousins, and my grandma was there. I have family. My parents didn't go, though. But they made sure I went. And those days, in that generation, a large percentage of people in America went to church or Sunday school. Today, we have generations that don't know God from a hole in the ground. Why? Because people fell away from their first love. They lost their spiritual discipline. They turned away from God to become lovers of self, lovers of money, and lovers of pleasure. And as we've talked about fairly recently, the latest surveys indicate <coughs> the highest percentage of people 
who have a biblical worldview, and this even includes pastors, my friends, 65 and over, 9% have a biblical worldview. That's almost nothing. What is a biblical worldview? It means you view the, view the world through a biblical lens. Everything you see, everything you hear, everything you believe is filtered through a biblical worldview and only 9% of our people have a biblical worldview. As you get down to the younger generations, it drops to about 3%. 3%. There was a time when most people could at least tell you what the, you know, the most famous stories in the Bible were. Adam and Eve, Noah, the flood, Jonah and the whale, you know, stories from the Gospels. People today don't have any sense of any of that. That's where we've fallen to. And that's as far as we're going to get today, so let's stand. We'll finish. Actually, the title of the message, even though the, the, um, the, uh, the conference theme and the, the major theme is our first love, and you'll find out next week why, but the title of the message is actually Continue. Continue. If you don't want to lose your first love or fall away from your first love, you need to continue. Let's pray. Raise your hand if you have a prayer request. Lots, lots of people. Lord, we love you. We know you love us. We're gracious and thank we're graciously thankful uh, for the opportunity, gratefully, I should say. We're gratefully thankful, Father, for the opportunity to bring our prayer requests before you. We thank you, Father, that your word tells us if we ask anything in Jesus' name that you would hear that prayer. So we come to you now, Father, in Jesus' name. We lift up health issues. I'm sure there's a number of them here today. Lord, and you're aware of each situation, and you are the great physician. Lord, we're thankful for the medical care that we can get in this day and age. We are thankful for the medical personnel, but we're more thankful for you as the great physician because you can do what they can't. Lord, they, they only have a certain amount of ability, a certain amount of resources with which to help us, and we're grateful for them. But ultimately, we look to you as the healer of our bodies, Lord. Lord, there are broken bones here today, I believe. There are other afflictions, cancer, Lord, you know every situation. And we love you no matter what. And just like Tucker Carlson said today, as believers, we should not fear death. But Father, at the same time, you've created within us a desire to live, not to die. And so we pray for healing whenever, however possible, according to your perfect will, of course. But we ask for relief from pain, healing of broken bones. Lord, uh, remission from cancer and other uh, diseases. And Lord, we will give you the praise and the glory for the healing, and we'll give you the praise and the glory even if we don't get the healing. But we lovingly, humbly beseech you for healing in our bodies that we can continue to serve you and to serve one another. Lord, we pray for mental and emotional issues that also uh, can drag us down. We pray for healing of the mind the heart, the brokenhearted. You said, Lord, you came to heal the brokenhearted. Lord, you know who in this room today has a broken heart. 
They've been hurt. They've been wounded. They've been disappointed. But Lord, you are the God of all comfort. We pray that you'd come upon them with your comfort, your strength, your encouragement. Lift them out of the darkness into the light. We pray, Lord, for relationships that have been hurt, damaged, broken. Lord, even those that might seem beyond repair, nothing is too difficult for you. We pray for marriages that are broken or on the verge of falling apart. We know the enemy comes to steal, to kill, to destroy. You've come that we might have life and life more abundantly. We pray that those relationships could be healed and that you would help us, use us as your instruments of reconciliation, restoration, forgiveness. Lord, help us, even if we're the ones that have been wrong, to be the first to reach out and promote reconciliation. And Lord, for those who are in a situation where it does seem irreparable and the other person's not willing to participate, we ask for comfort, for strength, for peace, for wisdom. And you promise to give us all those things in Christ. We thank you for them. And finally, for economics, Lord, we're living in difficult times. You know that, Lord. You're our provider. Help us to remember that at all times, that no matter what's going on, you're our provider. Help us to keep our eyes on you, trusting in you. As Paul said, we walk by faith, not by sight. Help us not to give way to fear, doubt, anxiety. And Lord, we ask that you would come in like a flood and, and meet our needs as you promised that you would. But Lord, help us to be content. Like Paul said, I've learned to be content with much and I've learned to be content with little. Whatever you provide, help us to be grateful, to be thankful, to use it wisely. And Lord, we praise you and thank you for the most precious gift of all, the gift of eternal life through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, please receive now our final offering of praise as we prepare to go home. We ask your blessing upon the food that's being prepared over there for those who would like to stay and have lunch. Bless the time of food and fellowship. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.